Hello everyone and welcome back to a belated episode of Tell Me More Political Podcast. My name is Chantal Moore and I'm happy to be back. I'm sorry for the the lateness in this next episode but I hope you find what I'm going to talk about interesting and thought-provoking. I am going to talk about the nature of debate and how it's progressing and becoming more hostile in Australia and indeed globally and then connected to that the bushfires and how uh, politicians are reacting and uh, helping the communities or otherwise at this time. And then finally, I'm going to talk about Medivac legislation and the possible repeal that we could be seeing in the coming weeks and months. So stay tuned to hear more and I'm happy to hear what you have to think about it. Now on another note, I wanted to have a broader discussion of how as Australians and globally we as individuals, as uh, organisations and as governments debate and accept new ideas and new theories, especially when they're controversial or quite oppositional to our own. We've been moving more and more to a more oppositional model of not listening to someone and what they have to say, but classifying them as left or right or some other category and then deeming whether we should listen to them or not based on that category and not at all based on what they're actually saying. And that's extremely damaging for free speech. And of course, while you can draw tendencies from what a person aligns himself with by categories, you don't know how valid what an individual is going to say based on what they've said before. Give me an indication, but you cannot judge someone or completely throw away what they're going to say, especially if it's a new policy, if it's a new idea that we can use in society, in policies, uh, based on what they've done in the past purely. Recently, we had Martin Parkinson, who is now the Chancellor of Macquarie University, has had experience as the Secretary of the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, has had an illustrious career in the public service, and was Secretary of the Climate Change Department under some previous governments. He has made a few statements in his incoming role, and he's saying there is a real risk by how in our society we stifle legitimate debate on issues like climate change, and that is a massive risk for how we develop new ideas and implement changes in our society and government. And by no means is this coming from a climate denier. Martin Parkinson was secretary of a climate change department under a Labor government. So he is quite versed in the science and on board in that respect. But it, all it takes is a reasonable person to stand back and recognise that it's at a boiling point with people shouting at each other in the debate and not being logical, calm, reasonable and having a civil debate and discussion. Because yelling and being purposely obstructive is not going to make anyone change their mind. When you're looking at Extinction Rebellion, they might make a bit of a shock impact, but of the people that you genuinely need to change their mind, if you're talking about people who uh, do not believe climate change are real or that debate the science of it or have questions or have come from a background where that, that's what they've been taught to believe, shutting down the city, stopping people from getting to work, to school, to hospital and basically sending the city into chaos in that respect isn't going to make them believe in climate change. There's no correlation there. And of course, there's a right to protest and freedom of speech and democratic values like that. But I just don't know how effective 
that protesting in that respect is going to be. And especially the quite vitriolic response uh, a lot of people are receiving in this respect. You can see the same thing happening in terms of Trump protesting. If you're looking at a typical Trump protester uh, trying to convince someone who has voted to Trump to change their mind, yelling at them and parading in the streets and uh, getting into heated debates on the internet where people are really abusing each other, that's not going to make anyone change their mind. Now there are valid causes out there and real societal issues that we need to change and we need to educate people on, but yelling at people and being purposely obstructive and basically judging someone and preventing them from speaking before they've even opened their mouth based on what they have said or believed or voted for in the past is not good for our debate and not good for our creativity and thinking processes and policy processes if we want to have the most cost-effective, uh, productive and efficient uh, policy services for citizens, having the one perspective and not consulting wider Australia or wider thought bases, that's not going to help anyone and it's certainly not going to achieve good, solid services, products, policies for the community. So I think that's just another thing to ponder. Uh, some of these topics can be quite um, close to the hearts of many people and they have very large impacts for our society and our future. But if it makes you think, the next time I come across someone that has an opposite view, and this, and this goes for everyone, because everyone has someone um, that's opposite to their view, hear them out first, or let them, let them say what they want to say, and then have a, a, a de structured debate with them, with facts, without being uh, confrontational, and listening to them. And then, if you're so certain that what you believe is true, which it may be, Educate them and share with them what has made you believe the things that you do. And I have no doubt if, if they are um, able to be, have their mind changed, they're so much more likely to change their mind and agree with you if you do that than if you shove a placard in their face or if you yell at them that they're a lefty or a conservative or whatever stereotypical category you've put them in and walking away, that you're not going to win any minds that way. But that's just um, a bit of a thought to have in how we shape our debates and how we uh, advocate for our views. Extending on from that point about how we debate and engage as a society, I want to move on to the horrible bushfires that we've seen, especially across New South Wales. And unfortunately, there has been loss of life as well as a lot of uh, properties damaged and lost and a severe loss of wildlife. At this time, we've seen uh, MPs and the Prime Minister travel to the affected areas, offer condolences, support, assurances that the government is there to assist them. We'll have packages ready to go and to uh, try to give them the moral support to wait out the next few days uh, as we hope the fire abates. Now, in my opinion, at this juncture in time, as people have died only days ago and people are still unable to get to their homes, are worrying for their safety, the safety of their loved ones, now is the time uh, for support, for recovery, for disaster relief funding, for a potentially military to help with cleanups and restoration and recovery. Now is not the time for political snipes and point scoring. The Greens leader, Adam Bant, 
has made some extremely strong statements saying that the Prime Minister Scott Morrison is personally responsible for the fires and their outcomes. Now he's saying this as a link to climate change, being that uh, the Greens want more action on climate change, Scott Morrison hasn't conceded to the Greens' requests, and their argument is that therefore Scott Morrison himself as an individual is personally responsible for bushfires in New South Wales. Now there's a number of issues there. Um, it's one thing to debate climate change in a parliament, in a government, as the important issue that it is and to keep pressure on people so that they're accountable and do the right thing as governments. And another, to be making these statements as people are grieving and don't know if their house is still standing or if they can return to it at all. I think it's completely disrespectful and the wrong thing to do and completely illogical. Australia has always had bushfires and will always have bushfires. Now, there is, of course, climate science and evidence about increasing um, occurrences of weather events because of climate change. But to point to a singular fire and blame a person when, as if Australia or the Prime Minister of Australia is the only person responsible for climate change in the entire world. And even if the Greens were in power, hypothetically, and they implemented the most severe uh, climate science-backed policies known to man, the same result would happen. Are we saying that this fire would not have occurred if Adam Bant was Prime Minister? That's a pretty bold claim. Now, of course, I'm not saying this is not a debate to be had. I, th I think there's definite um, deconstruction of this issue to be had once the recovery is done, once people are safe, once people are in their homes, once uh, animals can be cared for and the recovery is done. Uh, we definitely have to look at this. We definitely have to listen to scientists. There are policies to be done. There are agreements to be signed. There are there's international diplomatic ties to be strengthened and uh, co commitments to be made. But at this at this point, I think it's it's cheap and it's the wrong thing to do. And I, if I was one of the people unfortunately suffering, I wouldn't want to turn on the news and look at that and have the the death and destruction caused by this fire used as a political stunt by minor parties. Now, fortunately, both the major parties, the Liberal Party and the Labor Party, have chosen not to be political about this and not take any uh, swipes at each other, but to attempt to help the people. Because that's what they're there for, that's what people are elected for, help people in times of crisis. Now, once the crisis period is over, then we will have more than enough time to debate science uh, and ways that we can prevent this in the future and mitigate these fires, these conditions and these horrible outcomes in the future. Now onto the Medivac laws. This has been a hotly contested policy over the past number of months. Uh, you may recall before the last election, there was a vote, uh, the government was opposed to this bill. However, with the crossbenchers and Labor, it succeeded in passing. And now the government's plan is to repeal this legislation. Uh, now before this legislation, to give you the state of play, if we're talking about um, immigrants who are housed in Nauru and offshore uh, detention centres, if they had a health issue that could not be uh, assisted within that location, so of course there's doctors and medical professionals in Nauru and those locations, but if, if a refugee has a specific concern that cannot be assisted by them, 
they had the option of applying to be uh, sent to Australia to have more specialist care. There was uh, like a panel of experts underneath uh, the government department. They would assess the person and with doctor's advice choose whether uh, they are uh, if they have a legitimate concern and they would be brought to Australia to receive that care if that was the case. Now, medevac laws change that so that two doctors just need to view, and this isn't in person, but say if there's a Skype uh, call with the, the person claiming for extra medical care, these two doctors need to sign something that allows the person to be brought into Australia. And that's to receive that care. Um, and now that person cannot be sent back. They remain in Australia permanently. They cannot be sent back to uh, the, the offshore location that they came from. And note, these doctors only need to sign the form to say um, they believe they need to be brought to Australia. They don't need to give them any physical examination or see them in person. So this, these doctors can be in Melbourne and sign a form to bring over the person claiming medical assistance. Now, in theory, if everyone is bona fide, that doesn't seem extremely controversial. If people are sick, they're coming over um, to receive that help. However, uh, you can probably see there is a big loophole and a big opportunity here if you are not legitimate with a health issue and you do not need to seek extra medical assistance, you can apply and if you find two doctors, of which there are two um, Labor, between Labor and the Greens and crossbenchers, there are over two doctors that advertise that they are happy to sign any of these forms that anyone wants to apply for. You can see there can be an issue of people trying to uh, come to Australia in, through this channel unofficially when they don't have a legitimate medical reason. There's also the question of why is this necessary? Because the system before, if you had a, a legitimate medical concern, the panel overseen by the government uh, would approve the person to come to Australia and they, they were given all the, the medical care that they needed and this has gone on for years and years. This is nothing new or controversial. It's this extra medevac law that, that people are concerned about that it's showing a loophole. Now as I said the government is trying to repeal this law and in the meantime they're trying to secure sufficient crossbencher votes. Uh, if Jackie Landy votes with the government they'll have enough to be able to repeal it. Another concern that's being raised is that through the bill, uh, security departments and the government public servants only have 72 hours between it being lodged and giving an answer. And we've had department heads say that that's not sufficient time uh, to do complete background checks on people. And especially um, a lot of these refugees are coming from war-torn backgrounds. It makes it very hard to determine their character and their purpose and if they have any criminal activity in their background that would give cause to not allow them to come to Australia. Now, if we look at the numbers, they've been building up um, and increasing over the months. So as of Senate estimates, which is just recently, 135 people have been transferred to Australia through the medevac laws. And if we're talking about how many people required hospitalisation once they got here, uh, we'd be looking at 13. So that's 13 out of 135. And then, concerningly, we also have a lot of people refusing treatment once they get here. So if you have legitimate uh, concerns and that's what we want to see being treated in hospitals we want to see people um, addressing their health concerns but I think we had we had 43 refused any screening as soon as they got here so they didn't want anyone to check them we've got to see some concerns there we 
the, the laws were um, supposedly there to help people get medical treatment and to be more caring and considerate and support people who have had a challenging life so far. But if people are applying for medical help, being transferred to Australia and then refusing any medical treatment, we, we've got to see that this is being a loophole, especially as under 10% are requiring, requiring any treatment at a hospital. Uh, so assumedly, if we're talking uh, more minor um, checkups and that kind of thing, there is a hospital at Nauru. So this is where these concerns are coming from, and that's the basis on the bill being repealed. So, and by the way, if, if the bill does get repealed, there is still the process in place of a professional independent panel assessing people, assessing their health issues, and having them brought here and receive Australian medical treatment. One more concern we just saw in the news recently was a man who was on Nauru. There were claims made against him for assault of a child uh, after discussions with the parents of the child and the child, no charges were laid, uh, but those uh, complaints were, were still made and we're led to believe there is reasonable evidence for the claim. That person is now in Australia and unable to be sent back uh, despite these claims because of the Medivac laws and the suggestion is if the previous laws were in place that would not have occurred. So of course we're, we have one of those difficult situations where we want people with genuine concerns to be assisted, we want medical aid to be available to everyone who needs it, however there are always, there are always going to be people who are illegitimate and exploit the system and that's a balance we need to try to make and we will have to wait and see if the government can secure the additional vote in the crossbench to be able to repeal this bill or will it continue into the future. Thank you very much for listening. I appreciate your time. Please find me on Instagram, tell me your podcast. Let me know what you thought. Do you agree, disagree, have anything else to add? And please let me know what you want to hear next time. Thank you. Thank you.